Today on Blue 58, play action was supposed to be a huge part of the Packers' offense last year. So why didn't it work better? Let's dig into some numbers to find out. Then more questions from listeners as we start to ramp up for the 2020 season. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another show. Boy, we live in interesting times, do we not? Some stuff going on in Green Bay that I think is different from anything I've seen in my life as a Packers fan, closing in on close to 30 years now. So I I don't have anything to add to what the Packers have been saying today. Just know that we're going to continue to monitor what they say and we'll weigh in as it's appropriate. But uh, it's a good time to continue to listen and uh, to try to learn what we can add to the conversation in constructive ways. In the meantime, we've got a bevy of listener questions today. We're going to talk play action passing today. We're going to talk about present and future coaches. Who's heading that way on the Packers roster right now? And then a good question uh, about some pass rush stats and the best possible application for them. So let's dive right in, starting with that question about play action passing. And as always, if you want to get a hold of the Power Sweep, a hold of Blue 58, or a hold of me, uh, check us out on social media. Uh, via email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com or by just going outside your house and shouting real loud. I haven't had a lot of results with that last one, but it's it's worth a shot. And if you happen to live close to me, it might just work out. So try one of those methods, get a hold of us, and we would be happy to, to take your questions because that's going to um, help us serve you a little bit better. So Krister asks, a thing I've been trying to figure out is why all the stats are saying that the 2019 Packers were bad at play action. From my playing days, no brag, a running game that the defense respects and similar looks in terms of formation along with aggressive pass blocking should render an effective play action situation. And to my knowledge, we are really good at running the ball. We have a good offensive line and a Hall of Fame quarterback who earlier in his career was great at making play action being deadly. Do you have any ideas as to why we were so inefficient last year and what needs to change in order to get the play action into the effective column again? And quote, good question, uh, because that is a big question or a big, big part of the Matt LaFleur offense. Play action is supposed to be foundational to what they do. Making every play look the same and building around the run means that a lot of your passing is going to come out of play action. So let's set the scene a little bit. What did the Packers actually do last year in terms of play action? And how does it compare to what they've done in the past? Let's take a look at some numbers from 2019 all the way back to 2015. That's all the hard data that Football Outsiders and Sports Information Solutions has on play action passes specifically. So I wish it was a little bit more than that. I was hoping we'd get back to 2014 because that was the year Aaron Rodgers won MVP. And he played a lot out of the pocket that year dealing with a calf injury. But alas, we cannot get that back that far anyway. 2019, the Packers ran 27% of the plays, their plays as play action. That was 13th in the league. They averaged 6.6 yards per play action play. That was good for 28th in the league. So a good number of plays uh, in the top half of the league in terms of frequency, but in terms of effectiveness, pretty close to the bottom. That was a jump in both categories from 2018, the last year of Mike McCarthy. They ran 20% of their plays as play action. Uh, that was 20th in the league. They averaged 6.4 yards per play, 30th in the league. In 2017, it was 22% and 5.9 yards per play. That's 17th and 31st in the league, respectively. 2016 was just 15% uh, for 6.4 per play. play. Uh, Both of those were 28th in the league. And then 2015, 
the absolute worst among these seasons that we have to look at here. They ran just 16% of their plays as play action. They ran play action on 16% of their plays, I suppose I should say. And uh, averaged just 5.2 yards per play. The frequency was 26th in the league, and they were dead last in the NFL in terms of yards per play. So in context, the Packers are running play action more than ever. But it's not much more effective than it's ever been. I mean, it's better than 2015. It's better than any of the last four seasons the Packers had under Mike McCarthy. But compared to the league as a whole, the Packers are not that efficient on play action. So why is that? Let's investigate. we got to start really with the main and really only driver here. If Matt LaFleur is calling plays, play action plays, the 13th most in the league, the only other person you can really look at is Aaron Rodgers. So what are people saying about Aaron Rodgers and his play action effectiveness? Here's, here's pro football focus, as described by Dairyland Express. As far as Rodgers' stats go in 2019, his completion percentage of 65.8% ranked 21st, 7.3 yards per attempt on play action ranked 32nd, and he only threw three touchdowns off play action passes. His 91.3 passer rating was 30th out of 37 qualified candidates. On top of that, his yards per attempt only increased by 0.4 yards on play action compared to his overall average. That was ranked 29th. Typically, play action is when we see quarterbacks throw downfield more, but that wasn't the case with Rodgers. Well, that may be the case, and we'll get to that here in a second. His completions may have gone further down the field. That doesn't necessarily mean that his attempts were also not further down the field. Remember that. Touchdown Wire compares 2018 and 2019 um, under Lafleur and McCarthy for Rodgers. Quoting from the article here, I don't have the article in your show notes. The entire thing is, is ne- not necessarily... Uh, germane to what we're talking about here, so I haven't bothered to link it in your show notes, but I think these two paragraphs stand out. Quote, last year, however, under Lafleur, the Packers made more use of play action and the results translated to the field and the stat sheet. While in 2018, play action concepts composed just 20.1% of Rodgers' passing plays, that number jumped a bit to 26.1% in 2019. That moved the veteran quarterback from 19th in the league among qualified passers, um to 12th in the league, a not-insignificant move. Furthermore, Rodgers' production on these plays was much improved. In 2019, his completion percentage was 5% better on play-action plays as opposed to traditional dropbacks, and his yards per attempt was an increase of 0.4 on play-action plays. So, again, some of the same kind of numbers there. Rodgers was a little bit better in some areas, um, but overall just kind of a middling effort on play-action. I was unable to verify all of the numbers presented in that Touchdown Wire article. That's why I don't want to necessarily link to it, but I think it is putting a little bit of the Football Outsider stuff into context. So why is Aaron Rodgers performing a little bit worse in play action? And and moreover, why has it not been great really over the past few years? Even if the Packers didn't call it all that much, you'd think it should probably have been better than it was over the, the last few years with McCarthy. A couple reasons. First, it's a pretty well-established trend at this point that Aaron Rodgers holds the ball longer and longer to the detriment of the offense. And I think if you're running a play-action-heavy offense, getting the ball out quickly once you've completed that fake is going to be a big part of making those plays effective. 
So you carry out your fake, you step back, you survey the defense. By then, everybody is at the point of their route where they should be either open or about to come open. But as we've seen with Aaron Rodgers again and again and again over the years, what is more likely to happen is that Aaron Rodgers completes the fake, gets to the top of his drop, looks around the field, and then waits, and then moves, and then waits, and then moves, and then waits, and then finally throws the ball, usually pretty effectively. But that's not necessarily the best way to get the most out of your play-action game. The second reason is that he's throwing it a little bit differently than in the past. This is more about throw selection than mechanics, though mechanics are something we've talked about in the past. That's not necessarily germane here. But what he is doing when he throws the ball is a little bit different. According to Sports Information Solutions, he is throwing more deep passes, or at least he was in 2019, than before. They refer to these as bombs, very deep passes. And according to Sports Information Solutions, 13% of his passes in 2019 were bombs. That is the highest it's been in the last couple years. And he's doing it at the expense of mid-range passes. His bomb attempts went up at the same rate that his intermediate attempts went down. He's also throwing more catchable balls, so it's not necessarily accuracy overall, but I think it's where he's throwing the ball. He's throwing it to places with a lower probability of completion, and that is not necessarily as efficient. So looking forward, what do the Packers have to do to be more effective? I think selecting plays where you're looking more to the intermediate range would be a good start. Don't necessarily look downfield on all of your deep or on all of your play action plays, as much as Aaron Rodgers might like to do that. But Nathaniel Hackett also said in his news conference this week, it might just be a comfort thing and that might improve it. Aaron Nagler had a good question to Nathaniel Hackett Wednesday. And I wanted to read his question verbatim uh, because though the, the answer wasn't necessarily super specific, I thought the question was good. Aaron asked this, quote, looking back at the 2019 tape and the numbers, I don't think it's any stretch to say that your play action game was hit and miss. And it certainly seems that Aaron looks more efficient in the play action game this summer. Has that been an emphasis? Is there something, is that something you're doing there? Because it's notable. And Hackett, kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, but he did offer a couple nuggets that I thought were noteworthy. He said, first and foremost, I think it's one of those things being in our second year together, all of us knowing each other, just understanding the system better, just understanding Aaron better. Then he kind of went down a couple rabbit trails and he circled back to that point a little bit and said this, quote, Aaron's just really embraced it. He's really enjoying it. You can see some of those things just start to develop, end quote. So the outlook may be a little bit brighter. Aaron just more comfortable in the passing system, the play-action passing system. They may be able to get more efficient just choosing different throws. That's, again, on Aaron Rodgers, so not necessarily anything the, the coaches can control, but that, that could make their play-action game a little bit more efficient. Or it could just be that the Packers are just not equipped to, to run this very efficiently. If you want to pin their inefficiency in play-action passings on, passing on a couple of things, it is this or maybe this, unfamiliarity in 2019, uh, general accuracy uh, as a result of those deep passes, and then what you would you could quantify as shot selection, just picking throws that are not necessarily as efficient, leading to lower yards per attempt, 
ultimately. Goose asks a good question in these COVID-19 times. Why the reduction of the roster this year when you could have more players gone or opt out due to COVID? So we're going through training camp with 80-man rosters this year instead of 90-man rosters. And I think that is a little bit of a problem for younger guys looking to make the team. We've seen that a lot already over the first couple of weeks of camp. Guys who are who would normally have really benefited from playing in a couple preseason games or have been bubble guys throughout all of camp. Maybe he would have had the opportunity to become uh, fan darlings and just guys that we always are rooting for to make the team, and then we can complain about when they don't make the team and then never let it go if their name is Taysom Hill. Um, but we don't have those guys around this year. The roster is down to 80, and given that the practice squad has expanded to 16 this year, only 11 guys are going to get cut instead of what would have been 21 if you were still at the 90-man roster. So why reduce the roster this year when you could have more players gone or opt out due to COVID? I think this is a good question, uh, but we got to be careful about how we think about it. And that in, is the answer in and of itself. So the rosters are smaller this year, yes. But the guys that you're going to be keeping around are actually bigger. Uh, so you're keeping 53 men on your your, your normal active roster, and then you've got the 16 practice squad players. That's six more than usual. Usually it's only 10. So although there are fewer players right now, in the long term, there's actually going to be more guys around. Secondly, it also is going to involve less shuffling of guys in and out. If you've got to pick your 80 and stick with them, I think you're going to be more careful about the guys that you're adding. And that's a, that's a big consideration as you try to keep exposure to this virus down. That is, again, tough news for guys that are in that 80 to 90 range, but them's the breaks. That's how we're going to have to do things this year. I will be interested to see how Brian Gutekunst handles the practice squad this year, uh, the bottom third of his roster this year. He's been pretty, pretty good about shuffling that fairly regularly over his first couple seasons. But in this unusual time that we're in, is he going to be able to keep doing that? I would hope so, uh, because you never know what you find when you continue to do that. Look what they did last year. They, they ended up with Tyler Irvin and Jared Veld here. You never know what you're going to find. You're never know who's, you never know who's going to become available. I hope they can continue to do that. We got a couple questions that I kind of want to merge into one, so I'm not going to name any names here. But uh, a couple listeners asked questions about assistant coaches, specifically who is standing out this year. So I'll give you three names. First, Jerry Gray. Uh, a lot of people have written about Jerry Gray. Um, he came over from Minnesota after a, a very successful run there. Long relationship with Mike Zimmer. True lifer, this guy. Eight years as a player, plus 23 years in the NFL as a coach. He also did two years at, at SMU as a coach. Nobody seems to have a bad word to say about him. Former uh uh, I guess former teammate, or not really teammate, but uh, a guy he worked with in Washington, Fred Smoot, um, Jerry Gray coached him from 2007 to 2009, said of Gray, quote, he's very honest with you. He's a teacher. He's going to let you know what your flaws are. He's going to let you know what your ceiling can be. He's going to let you know you are what you, you put into the game. He's a great teacher when it comes to that, and he's comfortable with the defensive back position. That's his position. He loves to communicate, end quote. Jair Alexander said of Coach Gray, 
that he has, quote, a great deal of knowledge. I mean, it's endless. I could listen to Coach Gray talk about the whole time about ball because there's just things that he's opened my eyes up to that I've never realized or noticed. Just my mental approach is night and day from last year, so he's been a great deal of help, end quote. Uh, What is he doing with these guys? Well, here is Mr. Gray in his own word. Quote, I want every starter on that defense, especially in the secondary, to be a leader. I don't want Jair to have to rely on someone else to give him a call. I tell him all the time, you should be able to make that call from the corner spot. You should be able to look at Darnell Savage and say, hey, we're doing this and not wait on the safeties, end quote. So he wants his players to be familiar with what's going on. He wants them to be so comfortable in the defense that they can lead from wherever they are on the field. That's music to my ears as a fan, and I hope it is to yours as well. Uh, The other guy I have enjoyed seeing so far this year is Mike Smith. Uh, He's got some deep connections to Mike Pettin. He was drafted by the Ravens when Pettin was there, ultimately followed him to the Jets, and now has ended up working for him in Green Bay. He had a really good quote that we're going to circle back to in a little bit about pressure stats the other day. Um, but in short, he is mad at the people who just count sacks and wants you to use total pressures instead, and we are going to talk about that here in a little bit. Finally, the third guy I really like, and I'm excited about this one because I'm very interested to watch his career wherever it may take him, but this one's a little bit off the map, so stay with me. Connor Lewis, the offensive quality control coach, and I will just read to you. We've talked about him a little bit in passing before. I will just read to you his bio from the the release the Packers put out when he was hired or when he took over as the the quality control coach. Quote, Lewis is entering his fifth season with the Packers after originally joining Green Bay in 2016 as a football technology analyst intern before being promoted to football technology analyst in 2017. Over the past four seasons, he has assisted the offensive coaching staff in data analysis, playing rules, and game management. Prior to joining the Packers, Lewis was an independent consultant for the Oakland Raiders and worked in the football analytics and information department for the New York Giants. He was a mathematics major with a corporate strategy minor at Vanderbilt University, where he also worked in the football office, assisting the director of player personnel, the director of recruiting, and the coaching staff, end quote. So a quality control coach is really just tracking all the little things, tendencies, little details on your end, little things you may not have noticed about your opponents. And I love that he is coming from a tech or data or decision-making background where he's going to use data and research and analysis to be informed about those things. I don't know what sort of concrete benefits it's bringing to the Packers, and I'm not sure you could really figure that out without ever talking to him or Matt LaFleur or um, you know, just really getting inside that building and seeing what he does. But I'm fascinated at his background, so I'm interested to see where he goes from there. Related to this, Carl asks, from overseas, in European football, sorry, I refuse to use the S word, there's been a long tradition that old players have become managers or coaches, but what about the NFL? What successful players have become successful coach or scouts or general managers, etc.? So I think there's a reason that you don't see a ton of them, and I think that reason is money. A lot of these guys are putting their bodies through hell for a decade to be, say, like a top-tier offensive lineman. And you want to erase all of that project, progress, and essentially start from the bottom again in a different possession that's grueling for a different reason and grind for another 10 years to get yourself all the way up to the top? I think probably not. Chances are you're also going to be making less money than you were as a top-tier offensive lineman anyway. 
The other thing about this is a lot of guys get into coaching when they get as high as they possibly can in their playing career. So very few people want to be coaches first. Almost all players or people involved in the game want to play it first. So they get their start playing. And when it becomes clear that they're not going to play at any higher level than they are, they get into coaching. And the Packers have a bunch of guys like that on their roster. They have 15 guys at least that I counted who have experience playing after high school, so college or professional ball. And a lot of it is pretty high-level college ball. Matt LaFleur did some arena stuff, some college stuff. Justin Outen, the tight ends coach, was a center at Syracuse. Adam Stenovich played offensive line from Michigan. Jason Vrabel was a quarterback from Marietta College. Luke Butkus was an offensive lineman at Illinois. Kevin Coger, one of their quality control coaches, was a tight end at Michigan. Ruvel Martin, of course, you know from his time with the Packers. Jerry Gray, of course, like we said, was an NFL cornerback. Jerry Montgomery Gumry played on the defensive line at Iowa, had some brief cups of coffee in the NFL, played in the Arena League a bit. Mike Smith, of course, was an outside linebacker in the NFL. Ryan Downard played defensive back in Eastern Michigan. Butch Berry played offensive line at Central Michigan. Wendell Davis was a linebacker at Arkansas. Christian Parker was a wide receiver at Richmond, and Rainus Stewart was a safety for a time in the NFL. So a lot of guys with NFL experience, not necessarily super-duper stars, but guys um, who did play in the NFL or at least at high levels of college football. It's not unprecedented in the NFL to see guys jump from playing in the NFL to becoming you know, scouts or general managers. There's two really good examples in the NFL right now at the general manager spot in, in John Elway and John Lynch. Now, Elway... Uh, has has had mixed results, but he's got a Super Bowl ring from his time as a general manager, so hard to argue with that. And and John Lynch seems to have done a pretty good job with the with the San Francisco 49ers. There's also quite a few players who have Packers connections, uh, playing or sco- scouting or coaching elsewhere. Or, well, I guess we're we're talking about scouts and coaches here anyway. So here's a quick rundown. This is not comprehensive, but these were the guys I was able to find pretty quickly. Al Harris is a defensive backs coach with the Cowboys. Rob Davis is an assistant head coach with the Cowboys. Edgar Bennett is now a wide receivers coach for the Raiders. Adrian Clem, remember him? Probably not for good reason. Steelers assistant offensive line coach right now. And then former Packers defensive backs Brandian Ross and Dimitri Goodson are both scouts with the Packers right now. Did a quick look at uh, NFL players coaching elsewhere too. Found at least 21, 22 A couple notable names, uh, Wes Welker and Jared Mayo, both former Patriots, uh, coaching with the 49ers and Patriots respectively. Mike Vrabel and Anthony Lynn, both former NFL players, now NFL head coaches. And then two stories that I like a lot, Keenan McCardle and Denard Robinson, both coaching now for the Jacksonville Jaguars, both played for the Jaguars as well. I don't know if that answers your question directly. Um... It, it, it's not a long list in the NFL of guys who are uh, who are high-level NFL players and then went on to be high-level NFL coaches, but maybe that sheds a little bit of perspective on, on a little bit as to why that is. Circling back to Mike Smith, and we'll close with this today, Mickle had a question about Mike Smith's interesting little rant the other day. Mickle asks, usually you count penalties and sacks per 65 snaps. Yes, we do. Me being a numbers guy, I really like that. But you talk about pass rush production ratio, you don't adjust for numbers of snaps. Wouldn't that be more appropriate and in sync with your O-line indicator? How would Packers pass rushers look then, especially Rashawn Gary? End quote. 
That is a good question, and that is a legitimate weakness of production ratio, but here is why we don't do it that way. First of all, the strength of production ratio, it is, like all, I think, really high-quality stats, is that it's a rate stat, not a volume stat. So it's a number of things per a different number of things, it is as opposed to just, he came up with 10 sacks. I'd rather have this guy had this many sacks in eight games. I mean, a guy who puts together 10 sacks in five games is more impressive than a guy who puts together a 10-sack season in 16 games. You have questions as to why he played five games, but I think you understand the tear you'd have to be on to get 10 sacks in five games. But here's the weakness for doing that that way for production ratio. To really get to that snap count level in a meaningful way, you'd want to do pass rush snaps only because this is a pass rush or playmaking stat. You'd want to have the stats for specific scenarios. And it's hard to get that accurately, and it's hard to get the breakdown accurately because production ratio is partially about pass rush, but it's not entirely about pass rush, so you see why that becomes a little bit of a problem. However, there is a little bit of a different way to do this. And it starts with that Mike Smith rant. This is fully quoted from an article um, written by Bill Huber, and you can find the, the Mike Smith rant just about anywhere. Uh, just just Google Mike Smith rant, you'll find what you need. Uh, rant, uh, Smith said this, quote, a long time ago, it's probably when they started recording sacks, some fans, coaches, or whoever may have been to find a great pass rusher off of sacks. That's one of the, and I hate using the word stupid, one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. You find a great pass rusher by consistency. Somebody came to my office earlier and I'm sitting there and we're talking about it. I said, take player A and he had 13 sacks. Then we'll take player Z and he had 13 and a half. Who would you say is the better pass rusher? Well, you say they're both pretty consistent, so they're probably about the same. Okay. Then you take that player A had 57 pressures on the year. Then you take player Z that had over 100. Now who would you take? That's why you have to look at how they're affecting the quarterback. When they're in the game, are they affecting the quarterback with their pressures? Sacks are important, don't get me wrong. The players just can't believe that that's the only way to be successful because you're going to have a disappointed room, end quote. So take a look at pressures. Pressures are basically any time you affect the opposing quarterback. Um, you're going to get differing definitions of what a pressure is, but the best one I've seen is just affecting the quarterback. Um, you talk about, you see you see this phrase come up a lot when people are evaluating quarterbacks, uh, a guy who can get moved off his spot by pressure, a guy who doesn't hang in the pocket, who can get moved by just being pressured in the pocket. That's what you're trying to accomplish, making the quarterback uncomfortable. So again, Mike Smith wants you to look at pressures. And volume pressures is good. It's good that player Z, who is probably Zadarius Smith in his example, had 100 pressures and that player A had 57. That's, that's good. But to get that to be a rate stat, to really compare apples to apples, you want to divide total pressures by the number of pass rushes. A pressure percentage. What percentage of their pass rushes is someone getting a pressure on? And someone has done that for us, and it is Sports Information Solutions. You can find all of this information at the Sports Information Solutions Data Hub. Just Google it or go to sisdatahub.com. Here's how the Packers did in that number last year. Zedarius Smith had pressures on 16.2% of his pass rushers. Preston Smith just 144 
Rashawn Gary 8.5. That's how they did among the edge rushers. Rashawn Gary is the interesting case there. As Mickel points out, we know that Preston and Zadarius Smith were good. But Rashawn Gary may have had a bit of a disappointing rookie year. That's fine. That's that's an okay criticism. It's okay to criticize 8.5%. But he also only had eight, uh, 130 pass rush snaps, so not a ton there. And it's also worth pointing out that as a rookie, Zadarius Smith had a pass rush percentage or pressure percentage of just 7% on 270 pass rushes. Yes, he was a fifth-round pick or a third-round pick, a mid-round pick, as opposed to being the 12th overall pick in the in the draft. Um, so, so expectations are a little bit lower there. But at least you see the ballpark that Rashawn Gary is in. And if he can get over 10%, along with the Smiths still being in the, the mid-teens, that'd be, that'd be a really solid pass rush. Among defensive linemen, Kenny Clark, of course, leads the way. He had a pressure percentage of 8.4%. That was a career high. Dean Lowry tied a career low at 4.8%, same as where he was in 2018. And Tyler Lancaster and Montrevious Adams both dropped from 27 and 2.9% respectively, uh, down from 41 and 4.6%. So there is the stat that you want to look at, and I will try to do a better job of bringing that up more consistently as we talk about pass rushers and try to be a little bit more informed about the way that we talk about pass rushers, being careful to to talk about this stuff as a rate stat, how how consistently are you getting there, how, uh, yeah, consistently over the course of a season, over the course of a game, and I think that's going to ultimately give us a better idea of who's doing what for the Packers on defense. Do appreciate you listening in. That's all I've got for you in this episode. If you found something interesting in this show, something you think someone else would benefit from, uh, do us a favor and share it with them. That is going to help us continue to grow the conversation around the Packers and ultimately, as we say, help everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.